0: Well, it's a it's a long story. It goes back um, 50 years, you can say, because originally I didn't have such a name; had a normal, you know, American kind of name. But about 50 years ago, I met um, an Indian monk, and he taught me meditation. And after about six months of doing it, I really was re- really into it, and I decided to dedicate my life. You know, I, I worked as a like a, um, a helper to that monk, and then eventually I became a full-time teacher i became a monk like him and so when you become a monk you get a new name you know it's a monastic name so so first my first name was dada dada means um respected brother or uh, acharya is of title it means a teacher one who teaches by um, his uh... yeah right okay. Exactly. Exactly. You know, or father, or padre, or this, or that. So anyway, so anyway, I became Dada Veda Garba, and then when I, I took I took another initiation, a little bit higher stage of meditation, then my name was given to me by my guru, whose whose his name was Murti, and then he gave me the name Veda Pragyananda, and it means the one who get, the one who gets bliss through. Um, it's a little redundant because Veda and, and Pragya are almost the same, but. One who gets bliss through knowledge and wisdom, you can say. Oh, I, I didn't know that. Well, anyway, um, it's, they're, they're closely related, and, and the etymology of the words are, are similar, too, because um, Veda comes from a word named vid, which means to know. And pragya comes from a word, uh, there's another word, gyana, or gya it means, or keno is the original uh, word. Um, it means to know, but prague when you put a pra in front of it, it means perfect knowledge. Yes, they do. Yeah, yes. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah, the the cognates. Yeah. Oh, that. Yeah, that's a, that's that's a very good question because um, when I started, there were so many different kinds around. You know, and I tried, I tried several kinds. I went to Zen uh, meditation, and uh, I went to a lecture on transcendental meditation, and. Someone taught me a Tibetan mantra, and I tried a little different things, but I never could get into anything. So then, but then one day, um, I went to a lecture in Stanford University, I, I was working there at that time in the library, and um, the famous um, Richard Alpert Ramdas came, and he was accompanied by a guru named Swami Muktananda, and, and um. This Swami Muktananda couldn't speak English, but his his speech was translated. But I remember one thing from that speech. He said over and over again, you must meditate. You must meditate. You must meditate. So I didn't learn from these two uh, people. But the next week I was on the campus um, during my lunch break and I saw a poster came up and it said, it was a picture of this Indian monk and it said, learn meditation free of charge. So that was from the Ananda Marga Society. So, um, and I, when it said free of charge, I was really interested because I had been to one of these transcendental meditation intro sessions and they wanted some money. You know, I, I didn't know if I was ready to, I didn't want to invest my money when I wasn't sure if I could really succeed at it. So, in any case, I went to this, um, this meeting with that monk, this daughter with Acharya. And he taught me a simple method of meditation. So what happened was, after I learned the meditation, I went out into the main room, and then I sat down and I started to meditate. And when I started, this I had the feeling, this time I'm going to be successful. So after I had tried all these other things, and they didn't quite you know, work, or I just wasn't feeling anything, and then I went out, and then just with one or two minutes of the meditation, then I, feel, I felt I had this feeling deep inside. This time I found what I want. I'm going to do it. And, and, yeah, and, and that's and since that time I've been doing it. You know, that was in 1970. I, I started. Well, you have to you have to try you have to try the different things, and you also have to use your intellect to um, um, evaluate you know wh- whether you know this is the proper thing. But you do have to you have to do some um, hands-on work, you know, experiential work. Yeah. Well, of course, yoga really—I don't make a distinction between—but uh, I know what you mean. You're, you're talking about physical yoga, but yoga really, in its in its fullest sense, means the union of the uh, individual consciousness with supreme consciousness. So that—that's the task of yoga, and the task of yoga is like a it's like a manifold, um task because you have to prepare the body, and you have to prepare the mind, and you have to prepare the. You know the, the spirit. You can say, so that's why, like what people f- refer to as yoga, and then talking about physical exercises, is part of that. And so, Ananda Marga is, is a practice which encompasses all of those parts. It's called sometimes called Ashtanga Yoga because it has eight limbs of yoga. So, um, Asana, which is what everybody knows of yoga, that people carry around their yoga mat under their arm, that's only one limb of yoga. So, Ananda Marga or this Ashtanga yoga approach, or, or Tantra yoga is also another name for it, includes that. But so we so not this this approach includes that. We need the body to be strong. We need to balance the glands if we want to have a balanced mind. Uh, but we only but that's only not the end. The end is not to have a, a slim body or a health or you know good looking face. But the, the real goal of yoga is to to move towards that cosmic consciousness. Yeah. So, so they're related. Well, I mean, that's a, um, that's a long um, process, but it's experience. It can be experience of of a joy, you know, during uncertain times. And it's also experience of struggle because it's not an easy um, path. It's it's not it's not an easy path. It's a lot of work. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's a it's a long way. It, it's my thinking. Uh, my whole being as a person is a lot uh, is a lot. Uh, more balanced kind of approach to life, and uh, yeah, it's, it's really to, to explain you know fifty years of development in one sentence is <laughs> hard, but but it's it's different. But also another thing, which is another important thing that people should understand, also is that as you get older, you also get wiser too. And that even if you don't do yoga, people in an older age um, sometimes get wiser and. And they become more satisfied. Actually, they've done. I think they've done uh, surveys of people that older people somehow have a more have a, a better satisfaction um, in their life than the, and younger people. So you can look that up. But I think I, yeah, yeah, that's it is something. To, yeah, you can kind of look forward to it. I think. So it's it's two things. Of course, it's my yogic development plus my natural development as a human being. That's, that's what it gives me a, a different uh, frame of mind than I had when I first began. Yeah, it's just one. Well, th- an important thing, which even comes before the, um, the physical yoga, which sometimes is neglected, is what um, the yogis... Call, by their Sanskrit names, Yama and Niyama, and these are codes of, of uh, moral or ethical conduct. This is the base, actually. The base of of yoga is that you know to not to hurt others, to to speak good things for the welfare of others, not to steal from others, to treat others as if they are, are divine, and to not to take too much. That's those five limbs, those five steps are the steps which help a person to get in harmony with the world around him or her. And then, yeah, definitely. And then there are the five more steps which have to do with your inner self-purification, which is to keep um, cleanliness of body and mind and to keep the mind content and to uh, do service to others and to to read uh, uplifting literature and finally to to dedicate move the minds towards the cosmic consciousness through the practice of meditation. So these these um, these steps of ethical steps of of whether it be getting in harmony with the society or self purification is the total base of yoga. And then after that comes what is called asana. And asana means, uh, actually, it's a funny name because you look at yoga poses and they look very hard, but asana means that pose which is held simply. But it's simple in the sense that once you get into it, you don't need extra effort. But these asanas are, are what the, um, most people are experiencing. And they are practices, they have a, an effect on the, the body. Definitely, they help the different organs of the body to function. But they also have an effect on the mind. So, so this, um, these yoga asanas then prepare the prepare everything. You know, and then after that, then there are some more steps and those have to do with breathing and, and meditation and concentration and, and contemplation. And those are the ones which carry you further towards the uh, cosmic consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, so there, there, are certain, um, there are certain hints how to do it. In fact, a long time ago, Buddha told his monks and nuns, he said, if you see something that's not good for your eyes, then turn away, you don't see it. If you hear something... It's not going to be good. Then turn away. If you taste something that's not good, turn away. If you smell something, not. So, by first, yeah, yeah. Um, So the thing is that um, we're bombarded by um, sensory, you know, stimuli, and we have to choose which ones we're going to um, have around us because that has effect on the mind and also on the purity of the mind there's another thing of called the inner cleanliness and that has to do with the kind of food you take and, and this is people this is a very little known um, branch of, of, of yoga or of course the food also affects the mind and the food can if it stimulates what we call the lower chakras then that will stimulate um, thoughts in the mind maybe you don't want to have so, so that's so to keep your mind um, pure is by watching the stimuli around you, and also to keep your 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 interior um, also clean and, and good. Yeah, it isn't. It isn't. Uh, in fact, I have. Well, if I can, I can do. A, um, I have a. I have a web, uh, A YouTube channel. If you just search for Dada Veda YouTube, and I'm in the process now of um, making a series of of lecture presentations on chapters of a book that I wrote a long time ago called The Wisdom of Tantra, and I, I cover some of these, um, you know, things. yeah i'm I'm sure i'm sure you can i'm I'm sure you can there's a lot of material there and um it's just just a question of taking the time to present it Yeah, definitely, because that's, it has very—it's um, um, associated with sex. Uh, so there's a long story, is a seven thousand year old story behind that. But basically, a very important thing to uh, understand is that tantra is the name given to the indigenous practices of India of uh, spiritual practices, because in India there are two streams of of uh, philosophy or culture, and one is called the Vedic stream and the other is the tantric. So several thousand years ago, people from Central Asia and Russia, Iran, um, came into India and they were the the Vedic peoples or the Aryan people. They were nomadic race of people, but they had philosophers who would start to delve into into these matters of of, um, what is the meaning of life and things like that. So And that's, that's why the Vedas were composed. The first Vedas were composed outside of India. But when they came into India, they found, especially in the south of India, there were people who were already practicing. They had some spiritual practice, which is based on meditation. And you can say yoga, this whole thing of chakras and mantras and all that. And that is what Tantra is. Um, so so that's what, what I mean by Tantra. Now, it got... Um, misunderstood because uh, this was like in the prehistoric period you know this is like we're talking about um, 7,000 years ago or, you, know, um, or, you know 5,000 BC you, you can say and at this time some of the teachers had to make a choice how they're going to teach people so there was one teacher named Sarasheva or he's known as Shiva and he taught people um, two different kind of streams of of practice, and some people who were on the their development was not so high. He taught them a kind of a more materialistic um, stream, and then the people who were kind of similar to us, he taught them basically what is uh, what people practice as yoga today. So on the materialistic side, there was some practices of like um, how to control your instincts, and, and that's why this sexual practice was was um, confounded with with what. Which she was trying to teach people at that time, but basically, basically though the real practice of tantra is um, is to raise the kundalini, which is the the spiritual energy in people, and to to bring it up to the highest chakra. But which is really, in a way, it's also symbolic of the task of bringing individual consciousness to cosmic consciousness. yeah it is it actually is because um, as 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 you progress in this there's you have different stages of awareness so that's why like in the in the first stage um, of awareness you have the feeling that oh I'm here in the same, we're in the same, I'm in the same place as this cosmic conscious. We're in the same, like, let's say you're saying, um, let's say, I don't know where you're recording this in Portugal now or, or Australia, but but you have a feeling, yeah, I'm in the same um, world, this daughter, because I'm talking to him, right? But then when you get in a higher state and you feel, oh, I'm, I'm in the same room. And then you feel I'm touching, <laughs> you know, that I'm one, you know, so that's how it goes. So, so that's, so as, as the consciousness is elevated, the practitioner gets the feeling of the nearness and even there's a stage where it's like a touch of, you feel the touch of that. So there is a stage of, of different stages of realization that go with um, these uh, also called um, occult symptoms or feelings, whatever. They are, they are. But one thing I want to caution people about the Kundalini, because when I first started, um, there was a very popular series of books written by a man named Gopi Krishna. I don't know if he's popular today, but he was really wildly popular then. So basically the story of Gopi Krishna was that he was an Indian man who had been initiated by some teacher who taught him a mantra or something. You know, It was really a tantric practice. And then he spontaneously he had this experience of you know he said it was kundalini and you know now he he described it vividly in his books of the kundalini rising and filled his head and filled with light and so all of us you know when we read this we said oh i have to get this you know we have to do this but it's not so easy um it's not it doesn't happen like that for most people Um, so i would say really don't the kundalini is really something you can know about um, don't worry about it so much because when you meditate, you shouldn't be meditating if, on the feeling, oh, I'm feeling something in my spine. There's a funny story about that. There was once one yogi who was um, meditating, then he, he felt something along his spine and then he's thinking, now the Kundalini has risen. So this thing on the spine started to rise up to the center of the back and then it went up a little higher and he's really ecstatic. Oh, he felt after all his meditation, Something is going to happen. But then what happened was when he reached, you know, on the level of shoulders, the shoulders, the feeling took a right turn and it went over to his shoulder. And then he looked, he opened his eyes, he saw it was an ant. Okay. So, so don't meditate like that. <laughs> he said, don't meditate like that. Well, actually, when you learn meditation, you will get a special s- system of meditation. So focus on that system. Of Mary and follow it exactly, and don't think about the result, because the result is going to be different for different people. So, Gopi Krishna, the guy who wrote the book, had an immediate experience, but most people will not. It doesn't mean that they're not going to the same place where he went. As one example, which my teacher once gave, suppose you're on a train, okay? You're on a it's an overnight train. So, on the overnight train, if you sleep all the way. You're not going to see all the sights along the way, or you know you're not. Or if the window shades are down, but you're still going to that place. So some people um, the the windows are open and they will see some things or feel something, and some people not. Don't worry about that. But the main, main thing to worry about is that um, did I find the proper practice, and and secondly, am I doing it according to the instructions? If you get those two things right. Then Kundalini and all these stuff is more academic, really. Yeah. So yeah well, the choice is not always ours <laughs> yeah the choice the choice is not always ours. Some, for some people it's important to get some experiences and, and and we all come to this path, believe it or not, with a long history behind us and people don't realize that. And based on that history, which the yogis call—well, um, common people call it karma—but the yogis call it samskara. Based on those, that that momenta from the past, then we have different needs, and we we we're going, we're going to get different experiences. Yeah, you must meditate yeah I agree in fact academically that's what when I was in that place um, fifty years ago I because I had read a lot of different um, spiritual paths and you know about great teachers and then I found one thing in common a common denominator is they all meditated like even whether even Christianity the, um, Jesus is said to have gone into forty days in a cave or something like that so what did he do there you know? So the, everybody did meditate. Buddha had to do meditation. Everyone, you have to do meditation. Really, I feel, you know, I mean, you can go a certain distance with book knowledge, but eventually you have to meditate. So I, I, I agree. I agree with that yogi. So that, I had already agreed with that, but then when he said that, I, that, that, gave, that gave me impetus to, um, to, uh, to, to, re- to really do it. Well, meditation is helpful for an ordinary life, because because if you want to, I mean, do you want to keep with anxiety for your whole life, or do you want to, do you want to overcome some of that anxiety? It's, it's up to you. So there are different different approaches, but meditation can meditation will help everyone. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you're going to become, you know, a Zen mystic or you know, or you're going to go leave the world and go and sit on a mountain and meditate. But even if you're in this daily life, if you can learn a process which will bring peace to your mind and give you clarity of thought and um, keep you uh, immune or or more capable of correcting mistakes, then that practice will be helpful, whatever your profession is or whatever your way of life is. Okay, these days i because I'm in a different phase of my life, you know. I'm what I'm trying to do is like what I mentioned before is to, to record and produce um, kind of like a legacy of all. So, so before you know, the, before the um, pandemic struck, then I would I would go to places, sometimes give a lecture or give a class. So now I'm doing that virtually and also uh, on on YouTube. I'm recording, so all these things are recorded. They'll be here, you know. I. I you know, I'm at near the end, of, kind of ending of my life. So, but they will—they can live on as long as the media lives on. I've written a book, you know, the Wisdom Tantra, and I'm in the process of writing a book now, which on um, an introduction to the Progressive Utilization Theory, which is the application of of spirituality into the social realm. So I'm writing and I'm I'm recording, and I also, as you know, I, I write music. And so I'm trying to teach through music and. I, I'm still writing and recording, so so I keep myself busy with these kind of uh, editing kind of tasks and I'm creating tasks. That's how. Yeah, so that's one of my songs. I'm working on I'm working on some new ones also. Yeah, but it's it's related to one of the um the the one of the first things I mentioned in the base of yoga is the ethical conduct. So one of the um, the prescripts or one of the principles there is not to take more than you need. So so we have in the society where people, some people have taken so much, uh, much more than they, they couldn't even spend it in the, in a hundred lifetimes. And this has detrimental effects to the society. So, that's, so what are the effects on the society when some people take too much and others don't get even enough to eat, you know? So, so we have to look at our society and um, see, could we do a better job than we're doing today? So that's, that's, what, um, that's what this kind of work is about. And that song is about and my teacher, uh, his name is Ananda Murti, but under his civil name of Prabhat Ranchan Sarkar, P.R. Sarkar, he actually applied his yogic wisdom to the social realm, and he formulated a system of, of, of uh, government and economics, which could be an improvement on what we have today. Yeah, okay, that's, what, that, that's, the, that's my little... I've just finished, I've explained it in 10,000 words what it looks like. Yeah. But that's, that's not much, actually. Most books are much more. That's, very, that's a short thing. But what it looks like is um, a society that will balance the needs of the individual and the community. So in the West, especially we have a tremendous emphasis on individual and individualism, rugged America, where I, you know, rugged Americans, Americanism, whatever, rugged individualism, they call it. Um, And we neglect the society. And earlier in the the 20th century, then we had the the Soviet model, which placed much more emphasis on the state and the individual was belittled. So the system, which we're talking about, has a happy blending of, of individual development and also community of development, community needs. So, and that require to do that requires a, a different economic system because the economic system that we have today uh, is is basically, you know, people don't think about it. It's tremendously undemocratic. Um, it's, it's and and it emphasizes greed and. Uh, just pure gain at the expense of any kind of other values. So the system that we're looking at is a system where that economic model is based on a more cooperative model, um, in which that in most of the enterprises of the society will be worker-owned and managed. You see, because what I mentioned in my book is that everybody has—you have a right—and most. Um, almost all the countries of the world, you have a right every few years you vote for the president or prime minister. Isn't that true? I think it's true. But you don't but you don't have when you come to work and you're your firm, you have no vote unless you're a big shareholder, which most people are not. So it's extremely undemocratic. So the system that we're looking at, I'll explain on the economic realm, is a system of three tiers of economy. In one tier um, which is similar to what we have now is the private tier and these are very small businesses like restaurants and um, and th- things doing people individual craftsmen and, and people doing work um, on not on essential items but on luxury items but on things which don't affect the society. We say let let private people do their work there no problem. yeah, small small businesses, It can be. It could be family run or it could be a partnership, you know. But when we get to essential things and we're dealing with many employees, um, these things should be run by cooperatives. And there are examples of this in the world. There's a place, I don't know, most people don't know it, but it's huge. There's a place in north northern Spain in the Basque region called Mondragon, and it's a network of cooperative um, enterprises, which has a, they have a and they also work in other countries and they have a net, they have a turnover of 12 billion euros per year. You know, it's huge. And 70,000 workers. And um, and in that in those enterprises, the highest paid worker only earns nine times as much as the lowest paid. So it's a ratio of nine to one. But in American company, I've done research at some um, in 1960. It was a uh, 260 to one, but I think it's even more now because the, the talking about the CEO to the lowest paid worker, uh, so it's even more than that now. But so that's what. So we this is not um, it's not fair, and it's not um, democratic certainly because the, all the workers don't have any say. If the board of directors wants to close the factory, then um, they're out of luck because they have no vote. So anyway, we want to change that. So the co- we want to build a strong cooperative sphere. And it, it's been proven it can be done. Um, it, it can be done. And then on the higher end of the economy, where there are some enterprises which are too big, even for cooperatives, because and too important, because they affect the whole economy, like uh, like mineral extraction, telecommunications, and transportation, defense, things like this. These things should be run under public um, management, public scrutiny, public ownership, but not by the state, by the um, central governments, by local governments, immediate governments, a state government in a federal system or special public boards in a system which doesn't have a, a proper immediate government. So these are the key industries. So we have a three-tier structure of private enterprises dealing with smaller and mostly non-essential things and a, a middle level dealing with um, the uh, most of the enterprises, but they will now become, they're cooperative, and people have a stake, the workers have a stake in it, and they, they have a vote in it. And then we have a, um, a third tier, and these are the, the public sphere. I call it the public sector, and my teacher called it the key industries, but it's the public sector. So if, if we have this kind of balance, this is what it would look like. That's how it would, it would look like that, and someone would ask me recently, "Would there be markets?" Yes, there would be markets. Why not? There'll be markets, but the thing is that um, that the enterprises doing business in the markets would look different. They do. Yeah, the, the actually the big the big the big obstacle. See, because you have a public sphere, although the public sphere is being threatened because there are a lot of um, extreme people who, they call themselves libertarians who are anti-government and they want to even privatize even public services. You know, whether be in the U.S. we have an assault on education now. It um, is a it's very topical thing. An assault on the postal system, um, and so people want to privatize even what is normally has always been um public you know uh, and next they'll want to privatize the firefighters and if you haven't paid the firefighter you your house will burn you know so so this is the extreme but so we have to what i have said i, I run also another podcast on this um, on the proud alliance news website and i've said many times we have to protect this public sector and even expand it um because in some in some ways um it's already been compromised, and then what we have to do is the hardest job. I feel is to to make uh, more cooperatives in the um, in the other sector. The other um, and. well, um, it's difficult. There are a few reasons. Um, one one reason is just in sheer competition. I can give you like in, after I finish this thing, I'm going to head out to my local food cooperative, which and. The prices there are much higher, even for the same kind of things which I can find in a supermarket. And the reason for that is because this food cooperative is a smaller enterprise and and has to compete against Walmart and and chains, which have giant purchasing capacity. So um, that's one reason. Another reason is that the smaller cooperatives who are trying to start, they are are often not treated by the banking um, system as a... As a viable entity, and sometimes they don't have the access to credit that um, other enterprises do. So that's why um, my teacher, P. R. Sarkar, said that when when these kind of enterprises compete in a capitalist structure, they have to be given protection, exemption from certain taxes and, and things like that, to give them a more level playing field. So that's one reason. But I think the second, I think the biggest um, factor here. Is the legacy of, of ownership? So we and um, also the entrenchment of ownership. So we have corporations which are, which own the different factories. So they don't, These these shareholders, these stockholders, these, they don't want to just uh, okay. Let, okay, now the workers become the owners. That's like a that's a revolution, economic revolution. So that is the problem, and I was even recently. i was just listening. There's a very great economist who I recommend. His name is uh, Richard Wolf, Wolff, W O L F F, and he has a very interesting um, podcast um, called "Democracy at Work." And yesterday he was talking about even that in the in the Soviet model and in the um, even in the Chinese system, there's still private ownership of, of things, and they never really moved. They never really got to a place where there would be true economic democracy, so so we have the the legacy of like people who are attached to their ownership, whether it be a corporation or it could be even a small owner. But he, he's become now he's become rich, and no, nobody wants to give it up. But what has happened, you know, a very interesting development that happened uh, in certain instances, and I think is going to happen more. Sometimes it's there are examples of. Basically capitalist firms which have gone out of business. And then the, the but you know, the, but the factory was still there and the workers are still there. And then the workers took over the ownership of the factory and then they ran it as a cooperative. And what I think is going to happen due to the like the, the COVID um, crisis and different kind of pandemics, we're going to see more business failures. And when there are, are business failures, then um, it may become, um, an option for the workers there to reorganize that business as a cooperative and I think that some of the transformation will come through this economic dislocation caused by the, the, the instability of capitalism i think that's going to happen uh, yeah I don't, I don't know how to... I haven't studied that, but it can be. Yeah, the thing is, you know. When... But the interesting thing is that when the, these people who start their own firms and companies, first of all, as you mentioned, they have a higher rate of failure, and secondly, the anxiety is much more because they, they have, and and they and they work much more. Actually, that they, they work, um, they're working like twenty four hours a day, you know, to try to keep this. Thing afloat, so they would they would do they would be much more happier if they would um, work cooperatively. But I think that um, you know human nature is as it is. That's people are not going to learn that in an easy way. So yeah. Well, I have a kind of a different take on it, because, because you know, um, the capitalists basically are saying that individualism is what drives uh, the engine of, you know, the economy, you know, the individualism. But we f- also forget to mention that that humans basically have developed through cooperation, and cooperation is also a powerful engine, too. In fact, in fact, in my little booklet, you know, I mentioned that, you know, when humans began, they were much weaker physically than the, the animals of the Pleistocene. You know, the, um, the big megafauna mega that used to exist. But they, they emerged triumphant because of cooperation. They were able to work together and then to corner the beasts. And to, if, if they were working alone, they, they could have never, um, they could have never prevailed. So cooperation is a very powerful. Um, part of the human uh, equation Yeah yeah have we have to, we have to le- relearn it. Yeah, and that brings up another important point that um, these come with the, the principles uh, that. So I, I just told you about the um, these what the system would look like, but they're backed by certain principles. But in one of the principles, uh, Sarkar mentions that in order for this to succeed, people will have to develop a certain kind of spirit of cooperation. You know that, that it, without that. Without that spirit of cooperation, then um, collectivity will, will break, you know, and it become, it become a sham. So yeah, people have to learn how to cooperate, they have to, they have to learn to think about others as well as themselves. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, that'd be great. It's a really great example. yeah. Okay. Well, it depends on their starting points. I don't know their starting points, but if if you're um completely new to this whole thing, then I would um I would look at some ways of self improvement through uh, meditation, especially, and and then along with meditation, how to do the physical practices of whether yoga or diet or health, and to, to learn about the ethical precepts which which are, which are the base of this whole thing so that's that's really the starting point just to learn the basic preliminary things of self growth and if someone is of the of the inquisitive nature as far as the society goes uh, I would say to look into um, this progressive utilization theory and also as you mentioned to uh, to support and and uh, Take part in cooperatives uh, things like that so um these are these are some starting points that people can take yeah so okay yeah i have a youtube channel um you can just go to youtube and then search for data veda you'll get my you'll get my you get my youtube channel so there, i have a lot of i have 94 videos some are music some are talking some you know different kind of things um I have a website, dharnaveda.com, and that also has a lot of articles. I've written a lot of articles over the years and not so much recently. Now I'm doing more um, audio kind of things. And then, then I have another thing which I think is interesting. I, I don't hope other people do It's <laughs> It's a, um, a podcast series, of spiritual podcasts, and it's called Dharmacast, D-H-A-R-M-A dot C-A-S-T. And these are... Um, they're like 15 minutes of uh, usually like spiritual lessons, but I, I've tailored them so that even if you're coming in with almost no knowledge of it, no experience, you could still listen to it. Or if you're coming in with a lot of experience, you can um, get something from it. So I touch many spiritual topics in this Dharma cast. I I, I think it uh, could be worth listening to for some people out there. And then... Yeah, I have another one. I'm, I'm on. Um, uh, it's called the Prout Rev podcast, and it's on a, It's based on a site called ProutAlliance.org. and then um, you'll see the podcast link there. So it's so it's called Prout Rev podcast, and I've been going through the principles of this progressive utilization theory, and, and some of the I've been exploring some of the issues. Um, current affairs, you know, based on this um, knowledge. I I don't have as many podcasts there as I do on these, the spiritual one. So these are um, some of the things which... Uh, and then if you go on Spotify, then my music is there. Donna Vader, you can look that up. Um, yeah. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, it was really... Um, I found it a very enriching conversation. I hope, that, I, hope that, I hope that the listeners do too. That's the main thing. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Namaskar.